on now, because this is way off track already. So look, we've been going through Acts. We've started up again. We've, we've been making our way slowly through, like, like we'll do um, like six to eight weeks in Acts, and then we'll go on a topical sermon. And it occurs to me that maybe you're wondering, um, like, why are we doing this? Like, what is, what is this way of preaching? Because I know it's not typical. It's not typical to do what, what we call expository Bible teaching, which is chapter by chapter, verse by verse through a book. Um, and the answer for that is, number one, is I grew up in the church um, and, you know, among great preachers. And, and we lived all over the place, moved different, different times. And I got to hear a lot of really good, um, good, good pastors who had great biblical insight. But generally, they all taught topically. And I learned a lot of things. And then after college, the Lord just brought Molly and I to a church where all that they did, and they really did it even more than we do, all that they did was this type of teaching through a book, straight through and I learned something from it. It is to approach the Bible and to just say, okay, we're going to just open it up and read through and not let the pastor set the agenda, right? Not let me decide or, or the whoever decide what we should focus on or look at, but just to read God's word and just say, well, I'm going to let the writer, the Holy Spirit, decide what we're going to think about and talk about. That, to me, was transformative to my understanding of Scripture, what it's for, how it operates in the church. So I want to do this, and I realize some people find it a little boring. Sorry. Um, but I like doing this, and we, I try to do it about half the time, this, this style of teaching, just going through a book, because it forces me and you to pay attention to God's Word in things that we would normally gloss over and ignore. That's all. Because if we're going to say that we're people who stand in the authority of the word, we have to be cautious and careful to read it well, right? And it's easy for me to, to go on to the next exciting thing or the doctrinal topical thing that I want to talk about and neglect really getting into the meat and bones of, of stuff, right? So I just think this is a way to be um, honest about what the word is and how it works. And, and so that's why I do that in case you're interested in that. Uh, because we want to listen to what the Word has to say. And we can learn so much by a careful, close reading. So we're going to be picking up in Acts 21, verse 15. So if you have a Bible or you want to grab the Pew Bible in front of you, uh, open it up to Acts 21, chapter 15. And we're just going to jump right into uh, where we left off. Okay, so it says this. After this, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us. And brought us up to Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul met with us, uh, met, uh, went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and said, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed but, and are zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. Uh, we have four men who have made a vow. Uh, take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what, we, uh, what, what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. 
with regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written the, the, a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. So Paul has made this long journey to Jerusalem all along the way, like we looked at uh, like last week. He's being warned that it's going to be a difficult trip. It's not going to end well, <laughs> right? He's going to be arrested. He's going to be persecuted. He is well aware of this. And, and he, as he arrives in Jerusalem, the next day he goes before James and the elders, the leaders of the church, um, and he tells them about all that is going on and the ministry that he's had. And he's already been to Jerusalem before. He, he knows these people, and, and they're excited and supportive of him. And they're just delighted to hear about all that God is doing. But, as we see here, after a short while, someone decides to bring up the little awkwardness. The awkwardness is this. Uh, the elders say, look, Paul, we are, we are so happy about your work among the Gentiles. We can see the Holy Spirit in it. Uh, we talked about this before. We are, we are supportive. But there's this rumor going around. There's a rumor going around Jerusalem among the zealous Jews, the Jews who have believed in Jesus and who are still zealous for the law. It's going around and it's causing some problems. Because there are these Jewish believers who heard through the grapevine that, as it says in verse 21, you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. See the problem? The problem is Paul had gone out into the Gentile world and he was preaching the gospel to Jew and Gentile like we talked about throughout the book of Acts. He'd start in the synagogue, tell them about Jesus, and then... Once they eventually kicked him out between, you know, three, <laughs> three weeks and uh, three months, something like that. Usually that's about as far as he would get. They'd kick him out. Um, some would believe, but then he'd go to the Gentiles and he'd preach the gospel, gospel to the non-Jews. Um, but the problem that he has is that there was a group of people, particularly in Jerusalem, who are, who are believers. But they're believers who believe... Uh, that they needed to continue to keep the customs of the law. Circumcision, you know, uh, the, the dietary laws, all the laws of Moses. They believed that Jesus, Jesus kept those things, which he did. And so why should they not also keep them as well? They had strong convictions, and, and they felt uneasy. These Jewish believers felt uneasy about the influence of, of non-Jewish people in the church, right? Because they considered their law-keeping part of their purity, part of their obedience to God, and they wouldn't have necessarily wanted to impose that on Gentiles because they understood that we were distinct people with a distinct calling, but they weren't super sure if it was okay that the Gentiles continued to act the way that they act. But they were definitely sure that we shouldn't teach Jews not to obey the law of Moses. They were definitely clear about that, and they felt very strongly about that. And the long and the short of it is, is that a group of people who felt very strongly about the law and that Jews, no matter whether they were Christians or not, should continue to keep the law, this group had been spreading rumors about Paul, false things about Paul. They had been lying about what he was saying and what he was doing to, uh, uh, out in the Gentile cities of the Roman world. And they're using their words to tear Paul down 
And they're using their words to stir up strife against him and strife against the Gentile believers. Um, and really, I mean, the, the fascinating thing is though they don't really know it, what they're doing is they're opposing God in this, right? Because Paul is sent out by the Lord and the Holy Spirit is going uh, behind his ministry and people are getting saved and there's division being caused. And I, I, I think I, it's been clear from what I've said, but I think it's worth noting, it is division in the church. These are, these are believers, Jewish believers, who are saying this, Paul guy. He's, he's, and they're, they're, they're saying lies about what he's teaching. And it's a, it's a very serious thing. And it is opposing the work of God. And, and when I say that, I want to be very clear. I am not trying to infer or imply or make you think that you can't ever question churchy people or pastors or people like me who have microphones. Britt doesn't have a mic. She just yells things out. But now I'm just, sorry. Uh, I'm not trying to say that, right? I, I'm, I'm not, okay, because, because we're talking about, we're going to be talking about, you know, gossip and rumors and lying about Christians. That's not the same thing as being critical of people in leadership. There is a responsible way to do that, and there's an irresponsible way to do that, right? I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we should avoid criticizing churchy people or, or leaders like myself. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this, is that if we are going to say something critical, we better be sure that it's the truth or else it's gossip. Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. Through our words, we are capable of destroying. Like that's just biblical wisdom. In our culture, in, in culture broadly, and in, in the way that we think as Westerners, we, we think there's an ever-ending supply of words and we can use them however we want. And it's my right to talk about anybody or say anything about anyone, whether I have a well-formed opinion or not. I believe that I have the right to express it and speak it loudly and firmly. And, and we really think that, that we are okay to do that. But the biblical wisdom tells us that we ought to be very careful with our words, that our words have power. James 3, 5 through, through 10 says this, The tongue is a small part of the body. It boasts great things. Consider how a small fire set ablaze a large forest. We know about that these days in Washington, right? And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, uh, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in his likeness. James does not pull any punches when he's talking about the tongue. I mean, he goes out of his way and, 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 and really tries to vividly depict the, the impact and the risk of, of speech, of having a tongue, and wants us to consider how it is we use our words. And I would say, you know, I mean, particularly, like I said, I think in our culture we don't value our words. I think that's always been the case. People speak carelessly and do not really realize the impact of their words. But Christians, more than anyone else, I think we really need to be aware of the fact that our words actually matter. Yeah. 
Proverbs 10, 19. I think the most succinct, <laughs> this most succinctest depiction of, I think, a biblical theology of words. It says this, when there are many words, sin is unavoidable. Pretty straightforward. But he who controls his lips is prudent. We need to value and understand the impact of our words and consider how we're using them and if we are being prudent in the way that we speak. And James draws it out, like the act of speaking has potential to greatly bless, so we can bless the Lord God, we can worship him, we can be a part of his mission, and yet it also has the risk of harm alongside it. We can destroy people as much as we can build them up with our words. And in this noisy world, world that, that really has, we've thrown caution to the wind when it comes to our words, we need to be aware of what is going on. And James presses even further, as if he, his, his statements about the tongue weren't vivid enough. Later on in James 3.13, he says this, he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. Right? This is right on the tail of the warnings about the tongue. He starts to get into the, the way we, we correct this. And it's that we be wise and understanding and that we demonstrate gentleness that comes from wisdom. Says, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. James just be begins describing the chaos of an unbridled tongue, the damage, the potential that we can, we, we can, we can uh, you know, unleash, uh, the damage that we can cause by speaking unwisely. And then he gives us the way forward, the way to restrain. And he hones in on the characteristics of wise speech, gentleness that comes from wisdom. Let me ask you, do you value gentleness in the way you talk? I'm from New England. It's hard for me. We're, we're mean people, <laughs> right? But I think that the more... It's funny, like, I feel like when I was uh, just out of college, like the Lord really changed my heart and I stopped being as argumentative and I stopped being um, as, as mean as I was. And then, and then, and then I had a real change. And then every year after that, I realized, oh man, there's still so much more to do. Like I am so lacking in gentleness. I don't always have this peacemaking thing. My, my tongue goes quickly. It's learned the habits of harshness and criticism and self-justification, and envy, and selfish ambition. It's, it's habitual. And yet, we are called to something else. We are called to be people who, who have the fruit of righteousness sown in peace, and to cultivate peace. And again, the context is very much with what we do with our words and our influence, and the way we show up in life. You are either, when you speak, and I think this is a, is a way that we have to start to think about it, 
We are either engaging in a, a way of speaking and engaging with other people that makes for their peace, or we are speaking and engaging with people in a way that is tearing them down. I don't like hard binaries, because I think it's a little bit much, but I really do think with the tongue, we're either doing one or the other. We're either being people who say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the gifts that God has given me. I'm going to use my mouth and, and my, my understanding and my influence to bless people, to bring them to peace, to, 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 to uh, turn away anger and, and bitterness and to bring understanding and truth, or I'm just going to proliferate chaos and destroy people with, with, with our tongues. So to get really practical, right, to think about this situation in Acts, I think what we see is that we have a group of people who has failed to watch what they're saying, what they're speaking. And I've done it, and you've done it, and we've all done it. But they, um, I have a little, little slide kind of laying out. Yeah, there's, there's, they're, they're gossiping, right? And I think that gossip, we can, we can track where gossip comes from. And this is my, this is my theory. I don't have... This is just me falling out of my brain or whatever. Um, I think this is how gossip comes about. We perceive something. Either we hear something or we see something. We see someone do something or say something. Or we hear that someone did or said something. So we perceive something happened with a person. And then we interpret what happened. We think, this person is trying to say or mean or do or imply X, Y, Z. And then, if we're offended by it, or worried by it, we usually seek out confirmation. We, we'll, we usually, generally, will go talk to other people. It's, am I the only one seeing this? Is anyone else seeing this, right? I'm not saying actually any of this is particularly, particularly wrong. Oh, I'll talk about ways that we can intervene in a second. But we go out and we find confirmation, and then other people either say, no, you're, you're imagining things. They, they make peace, right? They say, oh, you know, you're misunderstanding, or... Or they, they help us to see, well, I mean, I understand how it could be interpreted that way, but have you thought about this, right? Or they say, yeah, that person's the worst, <laughs> right? And one of those two things, right? And then we go on and we talk about what we perceived, and I'm going to call that gossip, or I just like to call it public lying. Just call it what it is. It's public lying about people if we've, if we've misunderstood, right? I mean, I'm, I'm saying that that's, that's a potential, that we've misunderstood, and we end up... What we end up doing is we, we end up doing exactly what these people did. They heard some things about what Paul was doing. They thought they sort of understood what it was. They interpreted his actions or the stories about his actions, because they probably it was happening thousands of miles away from them. And then they talk to other people, and those other people say, yeah, that Paul, he's, he's a, he hates the law, he hates Moses, he's the worst. And then they start to lie, and then, as we'll see later next week, they start a riot and try to kill him. <laughs> Usually doesn't go that far. I'm happy to say, but sometimes it does. All right, so I just want to think through this, like, what can we do, right? Because I, I think in the end, we have to be aware that it's easy for any of us to be caught up into this kind of a cycle. Usually it doesn't end in a riot. Usually it doesn't end in, in probably quite as tragic things as we see on display here, but it does damage to people if we don't intervene at these different points. And there are ways that we can intervene. Um, first, on the level of perception, um, we can really ask ourselves, uh, am I really seeing or hearing what I think I'm seeing? I got an email the other day. E email is the worst. I got an email the other day, and I was really like 
bothered by it because this person said something that I thought was just like a passive-aggressive jab. And um, I was going to—I was, I was actually— I was going to send an email back and say, what are you talking about? Like, I'm trying to understand. And it turns out that he, in the end, sent an email back and and explained what he meant. He was talking about something I had no idea what it was. I know this is vague in a weird way to talk. I'm talking about some things. But it's honestly not worth me explaining what I was talking about. So, (laughs) But I'm just saying, like, I read something and interpreted it as a personal attack. And he wrote something that that I had no idea about. And it was not about me whatsoever. And I, for about two hours, was really mad. (laughs) my poor wife we were like just sitting down at the end of the day and I looked at my phone like a moron (laughs) and I looked at my phone and then all of a sudden I was just like out of it for two hours and that's that's that was my dumb fault there was no reason for it I didn't ask well I I think I sort of did but I I needed to look again Uh, I needed to ask myself the question am I really seeing this I interpret is this what's happening like or is there something more to the story that I'm not getting I need to ask that myself that question and then I need to go down to my interpretations, right? Because there's what we see, and then there's what we think we, it means, right? And we need to ask ourselves our questions. We need to interrogate our own selves. If we want to stop gossiping, we, we need to intervene. We need to stop this, this habit of moving towards anger and, and speech that tears people down. We need to ask ourselves questions. Am I speculating? Am I guessing about what was said? We need to ask the question, am I really understanding this person? And sometimes that means going back to them and say, am I understanding what you said? But we need to do this because when we let our minds flow, like we go to dark places. Um, Somebody says, I can't remember who says it, uh, but in the absence of information, people will make the most pathological assumption. It always, that's, and I, I don't mean, that, that's not like a, a jab at people, but generally, if people don't have information to understand what you're talking about, they will assume the worst, because that's how people are. We think people hate us, right? And so if I hear something and it makes me think, does this person hate me? I'm going to just assume, yes, they do. They're against me, <laughs> right? So we're going to go to that place naturally. So we need to learn the habit of going back and saying, do you really hate me? <laughs> are you really just like trying to, trying to hurt me or, or, or offend me? Like, or am I just misunderstanding what's going on here? Or am I misunderstanding your position on a theological issue, right? Because that's in the end what's happening here with Paul and these Judaizers. They're misunderstanding what he's saying, what he's teaching, what he believes. And then, honestly, I think this is an important step and something that we can all put into practice. I would say, try this one first. Um, consider your source. Y'all, some people are just liars. Some people are just liars. <laughs> and on the internet, people make money for lying. They make money for it. Like, we got to consider, like, like if, if you read something and you get so mad and then you repost it, you just made that person money. Maybe they're just trying to make you mad. <laughs> I don't know. Like, and I know that's like the internet and the internet is this whole weird thing. But even in our personal lives, like, like we really have to go with people that we, we get, a, and we, if, we, if we are going to get confirmation, and I don't think it's bad to look for, for confirmation to say, what am I missing here? What am I, what am I misunderstanding? Because sometimes you don't even have access to the person to ask questions, right? But you can go to people and, and ask them to consider, uh, to, 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 if, if you're rightly understanding. And, and here's the most important thing. Go to peace-loving people. Go to gentle people. Because otherwise, if, 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 if you are not possessed by, by gentleness, by a desire to make peace, then according to James 3, like, like you're, you're playing into kind of a, a demonic deception that's creating strife and bitterness and anger. Like we, 
if you are not mature enough, and if I am not mature enough to see the best possible light, what, what I think is going on, then go to someone more mature than you are and make sure they're gentle. Make sure they're kind. Don't, if, if you want to continue to be upset and angry and misunderstand, go to an angry, upset, misunderstanding person. They'll absolutely tell you that you're right to be angry, upset, and misunderstand. And they'll tell you that you should go tell everybody about it. And then you'll be caught up in this thing that you don't want to be a part of. We need to find and identify people who love peace, gentle people, and go and like get consultation with them, ask them for advice. And those sorts of people will probably say, eh, maybe you're sort of right, but you're probably misunderstanding something. And then we can let it go. We can let it go. And then honestly, like when we speak in public, we really need to be concerned with the question, is what I'm saying true? Is my representation of this person actually true? Is it actually true? Am I, am I giving them the most generous, generous uh, painting of this picture? Am I, am I, we need to really question, am I motivated by bitterness or anger or offense? And if I am, I should just say nothing. Just say nothing. Because if not, we are going to be falling into this trap, just like these people did. And I, I think, really, I just want to emphasize again, especially among the church, we are so divided, and it is so silly, the things we argue about. You will see things theologically different than your spouse, probably, right? Every, you will have differences of opinion uh, with, with, with different churches, different ministries, you know? And that's okay, I'm not saying that you need to just, oh, everybody has to agree that everything's okay. You can hold your opinion, hold it firmly, and yet not tear down someone else for holding a different opinion. That's all I'm saying. Most of our opinions don't need to be expressed. Most, I, I generally don't need to say anything about things. And certainly, if I have bitterness or anger or offense, I need to be careful not to say much at all or to just say, you know, I don't want to share my opinion about that. You don't have to answer every question. Isn't that a relief? Tell your kids that. They don't believe you. Mine don't. We need to watch how we speak. We need to consider what we're doing when we talk because we can get caught up in something that is dangerous if we don't. See, if the people who were spreading rumors about Paul had done any of this at any point, because you can intervene at any point, they would not have ended up causing this kind of strife and division among the church. Because ultimately, Paul was not saying what they said he was saying. He was not teaching Jews to, to give up the laws of Moses, to not circumcise their children. He wasn't teaching Jews to not be Jews. He was saying something to Jews who came to believe in Jesus, but it wasn't the thing that they thought it was. I put up this chart because I... We've talked about this in the past in the book of Acts, and we're probably going to talk a little bit more because uh, Paul goes on and gives a speech here in a little bit. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the conflict, but this is just a chart. If you really want to go back and compare and contrast what they were saying about Paul versus what he actually said, here's a chart with some references. You can do homework. Here's a homework assignment for you. Enjoy. But long story short is, like, with these, uh, there's three questions. Like, should Jews who believe in Jesus keep the law? The Judaizers would say, yes, always, every time. Jews who believe in Jesus, they're not off the hook for the, the law. Paul would have had a more subtle view 
he would have said, if they're under conviction that God expects that from them, then 100%. Paul said, if you think God expects anything of you, you need to do it. But he would have said, if they're around someone, uh, and particularly if they're around someone who is convicted, you probably should do it so as not to make them stumble or question their allegiance to God because you don't want to mess with people's convictions. But in the end, he really didn't think that he, he needed to. And sometimes Paul did and sometimes Paul didn't. And that was really what got Paul in trouble. That was, these people were just thinking that he was telling them all to change their attitude when he was just saying, no, I just have a, a, a way of thinking about what the Lord expects from me that's different than what you do. I still take very seriously what God expects from me. And they would, ask, they would ask the question, should Paul, a Jew, keep the law? And they would have said, yes, every, always in every way. But Paul didn't see it that way. Paul said he's going to be, to the Jews, he's going to be a Jew. To the Gentiles, he's going to be a Gentile. His goal was just to take away any offense or obstacle for the gospel. And he believed he had permission from Jesus to do that. So he just went in that way. His, his goal was different. Different than what the Judaizers thought was important. They would have considered law-abiding to be of primary importance. Paul would have considered getting the gospel out and having conviction before the Lord that's grounded in faith as primary. Enough on that. We get it. There's a distinction, but it is subtle. And again, like when it comes to theological views... People are going to see things differently. Calvinists and Arminians, egalitarians and complementarians. If you don't know what any of those things are, it's okay. Don't, don't even Google it. It's not, not that important. Just different ways of reading the scriptures. As long as we are being serious about what the word says and rooting our arguments in scripture, I can have fellowship with people who come to different conclusions than me. We can have fellowship and care and, and support people who see things differently than we do. And we need to be careful about how we speak about people because Jesus loves unity in his church. He prayed for it. He prayed that the church would be unified. And we have to participate in that by building each other up. Let's keep going. It says the next day, sorry, so, so, so they went in. They're concerned about what people are saying, and they have a plan to sort of placate the Judaizers, to, to, to prove to them that you don't actually think you don't need to keep the law. So we want you to go, and we want you to do this purification ritual, which was, was common when people were making a vow, and you're going to pay for these people to get their heads ritually shaven by the priest, and you're going to do it the same. You're going to publicly... Be a Jew to Jews so that they can see, oh, yeah, he really does keep the law. And their hope was that those people would see how wrong they were as they see Paul keeping the law. And this is what happens. The next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them. He entered the temple, and he, he was announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering uh, would be made for each of them. So he goes in, and he, and he steps, steps in, and then this, this follows after. He says, When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. What's more, he also brought Gentiles into the temple, and he's defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimius... 
uh, the Ephesian in the city with him, and they su- supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So does it work? Does the plan work? No, the plan doesn't work, because these people are dead set on telling lies about Paul. Um, it does not work. A little, a little side note here um, about the way that Paul was doing ministry, the way that Paul was setting out to, to care about people. Because he's, he's willing to do this because he wants no offense for the gospel. Again, Paul was like, to the Jew, I'm going to be a Jew. I'm going to be like the best, most righteous, law-keeping Jew so that they're not offended by the gospel. And to the Gentile, I'm going to be like a Gentile. I'm not going to like act like I'm better than them or separate myself from them. I'm just going to live like they live according to, according to faith and invite them to have the same faith I have. So, so he's intending to go in and he's intending to have a ministry among, among the Jews here. And so he's saying, I'm going to be willing to do something that I actually don't think I necessarily need to do because I believe I have freedom in Christ, but I'm going to do it for their sake. We live in a culture that uh, some commentators have called the age of authenticity. You guys know authenticity, how we talk about that word? Authenticity means I just do whatever feels right to me and nothing else. And no one can make me do things that don't feel right to me because that's inauthentic. And I'd hate to be inauthentic. It'd be tragic. But do you think Paul was thinking about his authenticity here? Look, Paul was a man, he believed he had freedom in Christ. He didn't have to keep this law, but he was driven by something more than authenticity. More than just acting in a way that felt right to him. He was driven by sharing the gospel with people. And he said, you know what? Do I need to go in here and purify myself? No, I think I'm right. I'm pure before Jesus because of what he's done. He's taken away my sin. He's made me right. I don't have to come back to the law all the time. Even though he kept some laws, he kept some very diligently, but he didn't think he needed to do this. But he said, he he considered, what will serve the gospel in this moment? What will serve the gospel, what will advance the kingdom, is that I just say, okay, I'm free in Christ, but I realize that exercising my freedom in this moment is not the best thing. Actually, Letting myself serve my brothers and sisters who have scruples, who are concerned about something, I'm going to just go with that, and I'm going to build up the church. I'm going to take away offense so that there could be peace and unity in the church. Paul considered that more important than his own preferences. Because he valued unity. And he valued the gospel, and he valued the shared witness of the church. And so I guess I just, like, want you to think about, and I want you to ask the question, like, what do the people around you who don't know Jesus need from you? Who do they need you to be? I agree there's something valuable about authenticity. Like, I am, I am the worst If you want to see my rebellious side, just ask me to fill out needless paperwork. I've let paperwork languish for as long as possible. (laughs) I I dislike busy work. And honestly, it's because I'm I'm just in this culture too, and I want to be my authentic self, and I don't like doing things that I think are dumb. (laughs) And that's that's just who I am. But that's not the most important thing. 
The most important thing about me and my calling is not to be a person who avoids paperwork. I try to make it be, but I'm not that sort of person. In the end, my calling is something greater. Your calling is something greater. Other people require something of you to help them see the gospel. What is it? This is ministry. It's us understanding that we have a part in showing people to Jesus Christ. He's going out of his way. He's light in the world, revealing himself. He gives us his word, and then he does, how, how does he do it? He, he, right, he, Jesus Christ comes, he dies on a cross, and then he leaves, and does he say, what I'm going to do is every year I'm going to come back down from heaven, and everyone's going to see, oh, wow, look at that, Jesus is real. No, he says, I'm sending you to proclaim and be a witness to the truth. Y'all, we have a mission, we have a purpose. It is not just to be our authentic selves or live our best lives. Nothing, and I'm not saying, oh, you got to just hate yourself and just like be the worst and, oh, I'm not going to go to church and I guess I'm going to do this and this and that. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we need to consider what do people need from us? How can we bless people, make peace with people? How can we encourage them to have peace with God and know and trust in Jesus? And that's going to require something of us. It's going to be more than just us living our best lives and being our most authentic selves. Maybe it will mean we should come to church. Maybe it will mean we should bring people to church. Even if we think church is lame sometimes. Even if that guy talks way too long. I don't know. I'm not saying that's the thing. Maybe it's that we should go out of our way to pay attention to our neighbors, to break, to, to break the Seattle freeze, right? And just say, I'm going to be super friendly. I'm going to care about these people. Maybe it's like we do these, these blessed practices that we have. I'm going to invite some people over for dinner. I'm going to burden myself because honestly, I'd rather be alone in my home because we're all kind of introverts around here. That's why we live in this dark place <laughs> that we can be, oh, we're cozy and we're inside, but maybe, maybe we're called to make ourselves a little uncomfortable and serve other people. In some ways, maybe we could take steps towards that. Going on, these people grab Paul. They say, we're not going to just like look at what's in front of us. We're going to believe that you're a liar and you don't care about the law, even though you're obviously here practicing the law. And then they stir up this crowd and the whole city was stirred up and people rushed together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was was in chaos, taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the commander approached, took him into custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And since he had not been able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he, he ordered him to, to be taken into the barracks. And when Paul got to the steps... He had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mass of people followed yelling, get rid of him. This is the fire, the forest fire of the tongue, right? One little lie, one little misinterpretation, sharing that with other people, bitterness, anger, all set on fire by hell to the point where they want to kill a guy. They want to say, just get rid of him. Words bring contempt 
they express contempt and hatred for people, and there's just no place for that in the life of the church, in the lives of people who are saved by grace, forgiven by the kindness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Contempt has no place in our lives. You knew I was going to have a Dallas Willard quote in here, so here it is. And we've used this one before on contempt. He says, to belong is a vital need based in the spiritual nature of the human being. Contempt spits on this pathetically deep need. And like anger, contempt does not have to be acted out in a special way to be evil. It is inherit- inherently poisonous. Just by being what it is, it is withering to the human soul. But when expressed in the contemptuous phrase, in its thousands of forms, or in equally powerful gesture or look, it stabs the soul to its core and deflates the the power of life. It can hurt so badly and destroy so deeply that murder would almost be a mercy. Its power is also seen in the intensity of the resentment and rage it always evokes. Lying words... Believing false things about people is like this, it is this water slide. That's the image that comes to mind. It's a water slide, a fast, slippery slide. I wanted to say slippery slope, but then that's a weird thing. Anyways, we get so far down this road where we just want to get rid of people, where we treat people as if they don't have value, as if God doesn't care about them. It becomes so easy for us as we start to go down this road of thinking poorly about people, of, of, of acting out our a- a- anger and ambition and envy of people, that we just destroy them, and we are totally working against God as we do that. We're totally working against his purposes. At the end of James 3 there, right, and when he talks about the tongue, he says this. He's, he's continuing to correct the tongue. He says, my brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. I just, I think that's like, I'm going to sear that in my mind. Just certain things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt water spring yield fresh water. Worship team's going to come up here. Oh, that's also me. Um... But just to, just to think about the, the argument he's making, right? Because he's, he's giving moral instructions. He's giving some do's and don'ts, right? Be careful with how we speak. Be careful with what you do with your words. But the reasoning is right here. Springs don't pour out salt water and fresh water. Fig trees don't produce grapevines and figs. What comes out of your heart is indicative of what's in there. And if Jesus Christ is there, if the Holy Spirit is there, if you're, if you're saved, if you've been given a, a new life and a new way of living, then the call is to live from that freshness, to live drawing from that spring of life, to live according to the power of the Spirit. And to cease drawing from that other place, that other source. We have communion with Jesus. If you're in him, he's in you. And he's bringing life forth from it. You don't need to change the way you speak 
so that you can earn his pleasure, make him happy. You need to care about how you speak because you, in your choices and in your actions and the way you speak, you're forming yourself into something. You're like sowing something that's going to bring out more and more over time. If we sow to the Spirit, we'll reap from the Spirit. If we sow to the flesh, we'll reap from the flesh. We're called to pay attention to our purpose and what God asks us to. If you're called, if you are adopted into the kingdom of God, then you're called to be about kingdom business. You're called to care about what you do with your words. You're called to bless other people the same way God blesses. And it's not like this is this is stuff. It's like, do I think, I think probably even these people who go after Paul, I mean, were they saved? I mean, did they believe? Did they have faith? Like, maybe they did. They probably did. They clearly have some weakness of faith. They have some challenges. But were they saved? I mean, this is the question we always ask. I don't know. I think they, they could have been. Oh, that's not your mind. I'm just, I'm stealing things. That's sin. I'm sorry. Uh, I repent. These people could have been saved, could have not been saved. I don't know. The Lord knows. But they certainly weren't acting like Christians. <laughs> they weren't acting like Christians. And we don't act performatively. We act from a place where we understand Jesus Christ has changed us. He's changed us. He's put life in you. If you've trusted in him, he's promised that. He's done and begun a work in you, and he's going to bring it to completion. He's transforming you inside out. And you participate in that just by going along with the work that he's doing and stopping fighting the work that he's doing. And so we can participate with heaven in building people up and making peace and being the sorts of people who care about others with our words. Or we can be the sorts of people who just agree, who participate in, in old stuff. And our calling is to do so much more, not to earn our way, but because Jesus has invited us to have a real life, a life of joy and freedom and peace. And it's way better than bitterness, anger, wrath, all the stuff that just comes naturally to us. We are called to live according to the Spirit. So let's just stand up. Let's, uh, let's worship the Lord. Uh, yeah, we're just going to go for a big song. We're not going to take a moment. Yeah.
Thank you, Lord. Amen. Go get your swimsuits on, guys. 